Hello from Ellensburg, Washington, USA. This is the Nick Zentner Geology Podcast, Episode 29, J. Harlan Bretz. Thanks for listening. Do you know that name, Bretz? Born Harley Bretz, but known in literature circles, in geology circles, as J. Harlan Bretz. He made up the J. He made up Harlan. But back in his day, 100 years ago, scientific papers had initials. T.C. Chamberlain, G.K. Gilbert, I.C. Russell, etc. So, old Harley made that up. And that's just one of many reasons that J. Harlan Bretz, or I guess we'll call him Harley, uh, is, uh, stands out from the crowd, shall we say. In addition to that, this guy was a genius, and I don't usually say something like that, but as we'll discuss in this episode, what he did in eastern Washington a hundred years ago is really impressive for a number of reasons, and I'm hoping to kind of discuss that. Uh, Brett's has been on my mind. I've been in the Harley Brett's zone, essentially, for the last few weeks, I'm putting a new lecture together for YouTube, which we will uh, record in a few months. I'm leading a field trip this Saturday, and we'll talk about Brett's just as much as the Drumheller channels. Uh, this Sunday, sorry, not this Saturday. doesn't matter. <laughs> And um, I think we'll even uh, do an episode on Brett's for the PBS uh, TV show that we have. So there's, there's lots of reasons to, uh, uh, to dig in as, as deeply as I possibly can with Brett's. And with this episode, I think I'd like to do the, um, the story that most everybody knows, the story that's been told over and over and over again. If you're a fan of geology, you know the Brett's story. Uh, if you have never heard of Brett's, um, let's do the quick story right now, and then uh, I'll try to, to get into an angle, a series of angles that interest me, uh, because I must admit I never really liked Brett's. I've kind of ignored Brett's uh, because he sounded like he was not a very likable guy, uh, but I feel closer to him now um, for reasons I'll discuss in a second. So what is the Brett story uh, in... Uh, Two minutes, or something like that. You can you can you can uh, get a stopwatch out if you want. It's probably going to be more than two minutes. Here's the story. Um, in the 1920s, a geologist by the name of J. Harlan Bretz was walking around in eastern Washington, and this is long enough ago that we don't have many roads. We don't have many other ways of getting around. He's walking. The guy's walking, and. Uh, he is exploring the sage and uh, the wild outback of eastern Washington. And by the way, many places in eastern Washington are still pretty much like they were 100 years ago. If you've been out to the boonies in eastern Washington, you know what I'm talking about. It, it is like a, a land that time forgot. So it's pretty easy to go back into Brett's day physically. But the story is that Brett started to find a bunch of geologic evidence, a bunch of field evidence, and it didn't make any sense to him. The channels were large. There were no major rivers. Big potholes drilled into the bedrock. Strange-looking white boulders all over the place. Islands of deep soil that are surrounded by no soil at all. Huge canyons that are strangely shaped. The list goes on and on. And he started to document these things and measure them and get elevations and um, 
visit place to place to place that had really been poorly understood to this point. And so we've got a guy trying to get into this recording studio. We'll see if he actually gets in. I'm waving to him. Uh, this is official business. We'll see if he takes the hint. So um, uh, Brett's uh, put all this information together in a series of scientific papers. And the scientific papers were originally quite tame, uh, saying that they were related to the Ice Age somehow, probably some uh, rivers uh, coming away from the melting ice sheet. And it wasn't controversial at all. But pretty quickly, um, he got uh, more and more bold with his scientific writing. And Brett basically said, I'm seeing all these things in eastern Washington, and I'm quite convinced that there was a catastrophic flood of water. He called it the Spokane Flood. So he had all these lines of evidence for the Spokane Flood. We need a lot of water moving quickly to carve these incredible canyons and do all these other things in just a few days. And originally those scientific papers were kind of ignored because who is this guy, Harley Bretz? Nobody seems to know who he is. And then there's enough traction with these scientific papers that we finally realize, oh, okay, we got to deal with this guy. I don't know who he is, but he is basically talking about catastrophic floods that sound off, awfully like uh, uh, some sort of Bible angle, some sort of religious Noah's flood thing. And here we are as the rest of the leading geologists in, uh, in North America, at least, and we, we know that's a no-no. You don't do anything quickly. The thought of the day was everything needs to happen very slowly and gradually in geology circles. And so this reaches ahead in 1927, where Bretz is invited to Washington, D.C. to present all of his findings uh, to the hand-picked leaders of the geological world who were specialists in Ice Age geology. And Bretz gave his presentation, and as soon as he sat down, one by one, each of these USGS geologists stood up and said, uh, I've never been to eastern Washington, but what you're saying is impossible, and knock it off. Uh, all these papers, um, you need to stop this. This is ridiculous. We are scientists. We know that there's no way that you can have a huge flood of water like this. They'd never been there, but they were convinced this guy was wrong. So Brett's, uh, throughout the 1920s, published a, a number of papers. He had a new paper every year. And by 1930, he had pretty much done what he'd needed to do and moved on to other things because nobody believed this guy. Brett's was just a, a joke um, or a punchline. And through the 1930s, the 1940s, the 1950s, Brett's is not accepted by anybody. And I mean he's not accepted by anybody. In the 19, late 1950s, uh, he has another paper that comes out, and by the 1960s, we're now up in the air looking down, and the discovery of these giant current ripples and a few other uh, key pieces of evidence that were not discussed in the 20s uh, finally caused geologists to realize that this guy was right, Brett was right, and everybody else was wrong. All the critics were, were incorrect. Uh, they didn't carefully study his papers, or if they did, they didn't know the visual places that Bretz is talking about, 
And now travel is getting easier and easier, and we can easily just fly out to Washington, and we can drive around, and we can see these places that Bretz was describing in the 1920s. It's a happy ending because Bretz lives to the age of 98, and all of his critics pass away. And in a couple of cases, a couple of his staunchest critics finally got out there, got to a couple of places, and... um, Uh, One geologist in particular famously standing in the middle of the Palouse River Canyon, which was carved by the Ice Age floods, famously kind of muttered to himself, but for others to hear, how could anyone have been so wrong? Meaning this geologist who had bitterly uh, uh, made made, uh, a mockery of Bretz's work finally realized once he got out there that Bretz was right and he was wrong. Uh, There was another geology conference in the mid-1960s where Bretz was old enough that he could not attend, uh, but a a telegram was sent to Bretz after the conference saying, we are all catastrophists, meaning uh, we all uh, agree that uh, what you were writing about with catastrophic flooding uh, matches the field evidence. Uh, as opposed to the uniformitarianism principles that the rest of the geology world was insisting upon. And then uh, right before Bretz's death in 1970, let's see, 1981, this is 1979 when Bretz is given the highest award possible by the Geological Society of America, the Penrose Medal. And it took three attempts uh, to get enough support to give Bretz this award. Uh, The story goes that uh, at least one of those attempts was denied because the Geological Society of America says uh, we don't see Bretz was ever a member of our society, so I don't think we're going to give him an award. Uh, So there's, there's, so that's that's the basic story. A an outsider who is eventually proven correct, and that resonates, I think, with a lot of people. The reason I didn't like the story. Uh, even though it's accurate, uh, but I never really kind of uh, pulled it close to my heart, uh, is because um, the the main elements of the story involve reputation and academia and turf and ego. And uh, to me, that's not what geology is about. Uh, It's a pet peeve of mine that continues to this day. You go on a a geology field trip, and there's a lot of talk about workers. This guy said this. This man said this. It's all white men, by the way. And uh, there's all this, you know, puffing up of chests and things. And he said this, and I said this. And, you know, get yourself out of it, man. This This is geology. This is about stories. This is about being inclusive. This is getting all points of view and all uh, backgrounds um, uh, invited to the party, essentially. And that's what I like about geology recently. It feels like more and more folks are being swept into this world who were not really uh, part of the world before. The Internet uh, has, has done a nice job of including people. So that's the basic Brett story. And what I wanted to do and what I have been doing in the last few weeks is putting this new lecture together, asking certain questions, questions like this. Um, Why was Brett's in eastern Washington starting in 1922? What background did he have? Was he really walking around by himself every summer putting this evidence together? Was he truly this outsider that had no professional connection to anyone? 
was he a geologist? Was this guy just an amateur out there looking around? Like, what, what is the backstory on this Brett's fellow? And then um, how can I tie it to Washington uh, in the 1920s? Since I live in Washington and I love human history and I love the old roads and the old rail lines and the old buildings and things like that, is there a way I can kind of flesh out that early part of Brett's story? So that's what I'd like to do for the rest of this episode, is to talk about early Bretts and not do as much with the, you know, critics and the reputation and that sort of thing. Okay? Willing to play that game? Let's do it. Um, there's a beautiful biography written by Bretts, and I finally read it this past summer. It's written by John Sonicson. I think it's called Bretts's Flood or The Brett's Flood. I should, should have looked at that title before I came in here. John Sonicson, uh, Brett's Biography. I'm sure you'll be able to find it. And John lives in uh, the Spokane area, so I, I visited him, and we had some coffee and talked about his book, and I just wanted to thank him in person for kind of setting me in this direction by seeing a little bit of Brett's background. And there's another... Um, biography of Brett's in the works, and I've made contact with that gentleman, and uh, he's focusing on early Brett's, uh, and so I'm hoping to kind of uh, flesh that out a little bit using his help, and he was visited the uh, old Brett's papers and archives at the University of Chicago. Okay, well, University of Chicago, there's a hint. So let's, let's, let's do the main bullet points of the early part of Brett's to understand why was Brett's primed for all of this ability once he shows up in eastern Washington. You know, oftentimes major discoveries or major recognition of things is based on a series of happy accidents that happened before you show up. Uh, one example that comes to mind is Brian Atwater. Some of you know that name. Actually, I think we talked about Atwater in an in a earlier podcast episode on great earthquakes. The idea was that Atwater was able to see what everybody else could not see on the Washington coast by looking at muds in the tidal flats at the ghost forest and other places and recognizing there was, a, there was a history of great earthquakes and tsunami deposits in that pile of mud. Everybody else just missed that. Well, that's primarily because prior to Atwater's arrival in the Pacific Northwest, his student projects his dissertation dealt with bay muds in San Francisco Bay and the Chesapeake Bay on the East Coast. And he knew intimately what quote-unquote normal mud looked like, and it was kind of a boring, repetitive sequence of, of clay layers, essentially. And so then Atwater shows up on the Washington coast, and he sees mud, as he would expect, but then he saw these incredibly clear... Um, marker beds of sand, or at least land-level change, that happened every few centuries, and he realized something dramatic was happening in that mud. So the point is, by Atwater's kind of mind-numbing uh, tedium with normal bay muds ahead of time, he was able to recognize something unusual when he showed up in a place that didn't just have mud. Well, the story is similar with Brett's. Bretz grows up in Michigan on a farm, goes to Albion College, a Methodist college, even though he wasn't into the religion scene too much. He meets his wife at Albion. They get married. Uh, he's a biology major. 
Uh, Brett's maybe took a geology class or two, but that's about it as an undergraduate. And he starts teaching high school, high school science. His first job out of college was teaching biology and natural science at uh, Flint High School, Flint, Michigan. And on weekends during that first year as a high school teacher, he used his bicycle, Harley Bretts, in his bicycle in Flint, Michigan, to pedal around the Flint area and start making a map, just for fun, of the glacial deposits in central Michigan. Now, I don't know, would that be something you would do? without hardly any background, just go out and start making maps of a discipline that, uh, that is mostly foreign to you? Well, Brett's had that confidence or insight or whatever, and so he, by just for himself, made a little um, map and a little geologic report of that county where Flint, Michigan is located. And in, um, I forget the year now, I should have looked at some notes before I came in. Oh, well. Um, in the spring of that first year of teaching high school in Flint, Michigan, he found out there was going to be a little geology conference in Ann Arbor at the University of Michigan. And he got himself down there and uh, listened to a couple of glacial geology talks. And then during the noon hour, uh, kind of nervously approached one of the uh, iconic geologists in the area uh, and showed him his little uh, amateur project of creating a map showing glacial moraines in central Michigan. And the guy said, wow, this is great. Um, would you would like to come over to I.C. Russell's home this evening? And he's going to have a dinner at his home, and you can talk and more about this with him. And I.C. Russell is a name that some of you know from geology in the Pacific Northwest. He was a big deal, and he was back as, the, uh, as a professor of geology at the University of Michigan. So Brett says this high school teacher is in Russell's home and Russell is telling stories of being out in the Pacific Northwest and climbing Mount Rainier with Bailey Willis and all sorts of exciting, dramatic stuff. And right then and there, Brett's decided, I'm going to go into geology a little bit more seriously than I have, and I got to go to where the action is. I got to move out to that Pacific Northwest. That sounds wonderful. And so that's what did. Uh, that's what Brett's did. Uh, Harley and his young wife, uh, Fanny, uh, took the train out, and they uh, showed up in Seattle. And from 1907 to 1911, that's four years, uh, Harley was a science teacher uh, at high school level in Seattle. Uh, he was at three different high schools over four years. It was a boom time in Seattle. There was lots going on. Uh, most interestingly to the story, uh, Seattle was going through a major regrade, which meant that uh, they were exploding in population and needing flat land to develop their city. And they literally, this is the Seattle regrade project, they literally took hills and bulldozed them or moved that dirt into the bay, into Elliott Bay, to create flat land. And it's much of the Soto District of South Seattle, if you know the area where the sports stadiums are, et cetera. That's all material that was originally in glacial hills in Seattle, but they, were, they removed the hills and put the dirt into the bay. Well, that's important to the story because as Brett is teaching, he's got all these exposures of this glacial till and this glacial outwash. And that's what he was looking at casually back in Michigan, and here it is on a much bigger scale. And he was taking all sorts of notes. And here's a big point. 
Bretz was rarely by himself in the field. He was almost always with students. Now, you want to feel a little closer to Bretz? At least I do. I'm always with students when I'm in the field. That's what Bretz was doing too. That was his life's mission. He was a teacher. And at this part of his career, he was a high school science teacher. And so he's out taking, he's in the field as much as he can. They're on walking trips looking at all these exposures of glacial till. And Bretz is not only teaching, but he's taking notes. And on weekends, he and Fanny, or he with some students uh, in a hiking club that he had called the Peripatetics, they would head out and cover miles on the ground, on foot, and visit all these locations and discover things the best that they could. So there was this incredible burning engine in Harley Bretz. He had unlimited energy, it appears, and he was reading as much as he could to become basically a self-taught geologist in the, in the Seattle Public Library and also the uh, University of Washington Library. And all these buildings, all these libraries, these high schools are all brand new, beautiful structures. Uh, the World's Fair is in Seattle in 1909. There's, there's all sorts of things happening and Bretz is in the middle of all of it as a high school teacher. Well, we get to 1911, and Bretz has been all over Puget Lowland, and he's met on these marathon hiking trips with some of his high school boys, and he's taken his field trips out as well, as much as he could. He was a disciple of Louis Agassiz who said, study the field, study the rocks, don't study the books, get out in the field as much as possible, and that was a major uh, approach that Bretz had. So by 1911, Bretz and Fanny say, well, uh, I think we're going to do this geology thing full time. And so Bretz left Washington and went to the University of Chicago to, be, to study geology. And he already had a bachelor's degree in biology, but in two years, he completed a Ph.D. in geology from the University of Chicago. And his thesis topic, his dissertation, was the glacial deposits of uh, Puget Lowland. And it was, in, in Bretz's words, uh, a near virgin territory, like hardly anything had been done to study. And, and uh, uh, Bretz is describing and studying for the first time the Mima Mounds. Bretz is the first guy to realize that the Osceola mud flow, he didn't call it that, but the, some of the deposits in the Enumclaw Plain had to be uh, a volcanic slurry of mud that came down from Mount Rainier. He's way ahead of his time with this, totally unknown to me, by the way. I've had programs where I talk about geologists in the 1950s making this discovery, but here's Brett's uh, 40 years earlier making the discoveries and writing them down in his uh, dissertation. So by 1913, he has his Ph.D. in geology, and he's ready to go find a teaching job somewhere at a university. Ideally, well, he makes it happen not only that he completes the Ph.D., but he gets a teaching job at the University of Washington. So it looks like this is going to be a wonderful ending to the story. Bretz is going to be out in the Pacific Northwest teaching at the University of Washington. He's, he builds a home for his, his wife and his, uh, big, starts a family. Looks like this is where he's going to be anchored his whole life. Well, he only lasts one year at the UW. There was a philosophical difference between Bretz, who wanted to be in the field all the time, and the geologists on staff. His main nemesis was Ed Saunders, who used to teach right here at Central Washington University. It wasn't called that back then. 
but Saunders left Ellensburg and moved to Seattle, and he was a book guy. He was a uh, uh, in-the-classroom guy, detached from the field. And so that, among other things, that clash between Bretz and his colleagues made it clear that the University of Washington, at least the staff at that time, uh, were not a, not a, a doable thing for, for Bretz. So he leaves the UW after one year and goes back to the University of Chicago, but this time as an instructor and eventually an assistant professor and eventually associate professor and eventually a professor. So Bretz spends a full career at the University of Chicago. Okay, great. How you doing with the story? We haven't gotten to the Scablands yet. In other words, we haven't gotten to the Ice Age floods yet. I promised I was going to hit hard his evidence or his, uh, his experiences before arriving in eastern Washington. That's 1922. Our story is only up to 1914 uh, now, I guess. Is that right? Something like that. Doing this without notes. I should have brought some notes in. My bad. Okay, so Bretz gets set up at the University of Chicago. 1911, 1913, 1914 is when, is when Brett starts at the University of Chicago. And he inherits a field course. Oh, that's good. He wants to teach in the field. A two-week field course every September in the Baraboo Hills of southern Wisconsin. Okay, here's another intersection. I went to school in Wisconsin. We always went up to Baraboo to do our studies as undergraduates, and so I know that area quite well from my studying at the University of Wisconsin. Um, and Brett's followed U.S. Highway 12 right past our family farm in Fort Atkinson, Wisconsin, every fall as he was heading up to Baraboo. So I, I'm feeling closer to Brett's. I still don't know if I would like Brett's. Does it matter? But I feel closer to him with all these intersections. And so Brett starts this, uh, this September experience, this, this two weeks of teaching undergraduates how to make geology field maps uh, up in Baraboo. Uh, wonderful. And then he inherits uh, some grad students and a grad program, and he needs a field course with grad students from the University of Chicago. So on average, every six weeks, every summer, he would go out to the Pacific Northwest from Chicago, take three or four or maybe five undergrad, excuse me, graduate students from the University of Chicago, geology students, and they would continue thinking about geology of the Pacific Northwest. That's why Bretz was in the Pacific Northwest. He did not live here. He traveled out here back in the 19-teens when it's not, you got to take the train out. There's no other way to really get out there. You can't even really take a car at this time from Chicago out there in the 19-teens. So let me continue with what I think is the magic formula for Bretz to see all these wonderful things in eastern Washington. The next phase of this is the next few years where Bretz is taking grad students out to the Pacific Northwest, but he's going to the Columbia River Gorge. He's going to the Portland area. And at that time, they're building a brand new road, the Columbia River Highway, uh, newly constructed, the first road to go up that gorge. And now you can buy an automobile in Portland and you can actually drive upriver up into this gorge and see all this amazing scenery, and you guessed it, read the first roadside geology book of its kind, written by Bretz and a guy named Ira Williams. Bretz is just in the acknowledgments as an assistant, but Bretz's fingerprints are all over that roadside geology guide from 1915, 
with the opening of the Columbia River Highway. And now Bretz is getting interested with his grad students. Why do we have in the Columbia River Gorge these big boulders of granite? Up on the walls, up on the side walls of the Columbia River Gorge, where did those granite boulders come from? And the shape of the Columbia River Gorge is odd, and the big waterfalls seem to be kind of strange to Brett's. And there's big piles of, of loose rocks as well in the floor of the gorge. What's up with all this? Brett doesn't know what's happening, but he's indicating, he's getting the sense that something big is, is going on. And with each field season, with these, under, with, sorry, with these graduate students from the University of Chicago, uh, Brett starts working his way up the gorge, up the river. And one particular field season, he hikes with his students uh, into eastern Washington for the first time. They're basically just following these granite boulders and mapping them and realizing that much of the Columbia River Gorge and then even into eastern Washington was underwater. The only idea they could come up with is that these boulders were rafted in on blocks of ice. But where did the water come from? And was the water just a lake or was it a surging uh, flood of water somehow? Bretz keeps publishing every year, every winter. He works up his field notes and makes a scientific paper. He doesn't have tenure yet. He's still working on this. But he's getting more and more interested about eastern Washington. Back in his Seattle days, Brett's one uh, evening in the Seattle Public Library found, actually the University of Washington Library, found a brand new topographic map near Quincy, Washington. And he was stunned by looking at the pattern of the contour lines and realizing there was a twin canyon system without any river in the bottom of it. It's now called Potholes Coulee. And Brett's was really seriously wondering what was going on in eastern Washington. Okay, I'll finish this up. We've only got a few minutes left, but uh, we're talking about early Bretts. And the last part of my early Brett story is switching now to Spokane, Spokane, Washington, in eastern Washington. And there was a series of science teachers at Lewis and Clark High School in downtown Spokane, Thomas Large, uh, McMahon, and um, Troth. And those guys were a cutting-edge science department, and especially Thomas Large wanted to get some geologists to come to the Spokane area and look at his area surrounding Spokane professionally. He wanted some new content that he could use in his science classes at Lewis and Clark High. And so Large started writing letters, and he convinced Joseph Pardee from the University, uh, U United States Geological Survey to visit the Spokane area in 1922, and he invited J. Harlan Bretz. He must have known about Bretz from his work in the Columbia Gorge and probably over in Puget Lowland as well. He thought, he thought maybe he could convince the University of Chicago professor J. Harlan Bretz to come out with some students and study the Spokane area, and that's exactly what happened. That first field season, 1922, Thomas Large, Spokane, loaned Brett's a car. So Brett's gets off the train in Spokane with his three students. He meets Large. Large gives him the Model T or whatever it was. And uh, Brett's plan for this field season of 1922 was to go visit some 
quote-unquote live glaciers in the North Cascades. And they do that for the first part of 1922, but with a couple of weeks left over, late, probably August of 1922, Bretz and his students, using Thomas Large's car, start visiting for the first time some of these key places in eastern Washington. Bretz called it the Channeled Scablands. Bretz started visiting the Grand Coulee, the Potholes Coulee, Drumheller Channels, Moses Lake, the area by Rock Lake and Sprague Lake, all these iconic locations that many of us know that are intimately associated with the name Bretz. Bretz is discovering really for the first time in just those last couple, two weeks in late 1922. He goes back to Chicago. He compiles his field notes. He writes up his first scientific paper on the channeled scablands and just indicates that those areas were probably the result of some meltwater coming off of the ice sheet. Nothing exotic. Very similar to the streams, the glacial streams that he had mapped along the front of the Puget Ice in Puget Lowland. In other words, he had already studied what normal ice sheet and normal outwash or meltwater is in front of an ice sheet. So initially he thought maybe it was the same story in eastern Washington. But the scale of everything was wrong, and the channels looked wrong, and a lot of things look wrong. And so by 1923, he comes out and spends eight weeks with more grad students. And they revisit some of these places they just got a taste of in 1922. And Bretz goes out now and measures elevations. He measures everything he can, the width, the depth, the length of these canyons, the boulders that he mapped earlier, plot those on. Look at these channels that are anastomosing. They're braided, and then they come back together. And a key piece of evidence, uh, the idea that there were some pre-glacial divides that then get crossed by this water during the Ice Age. Bretz is basically saying in 1923, you need all of these channels filled with water at the same time, and there's so much water that the water depth allows for one channel to spill over into the next channel among dozens and dozens of other lines of evidence. My main point is Bretz's earlier experience working with glacial deposits in Michigan and glacial deposits in western Washington, in addition to the crazy stuff he was observing down in the Columbia River Gorge, downstream of where these floods had happened, set the table perfectly for him to recognize in short order the features that were happening that existed in eastern Washington. And an interesting part of this story that maybe will never get fleshed out, although I'm working with descendants of Thomas Large to maybe try to pin this down, how much did Bretz get primed by the high school teachers in Spokane? McManaman, in a paper called Vicissitudes of the Spokane River, had a passage in his paper saying that if, if J. Harlan Bretz is the father of the Ice Age floods, then, then Alonzo Troth is the grandfather, meaning that this high school science head at Lewis and Clark High School was talking about Ice Age floods before Bretz even arrived. But none of that is documented. And, you know, this works with with most of us, we, we, we depend on locals uh, who know areas far better than us. 
and much of some of our my programs and my uh, things that I'm delivering to the public uh, stem from you know calls or emails that I get. Hey, you know I pro- I own this ranch out here. You should come out and take a look. I think it's maybe interesting to you. And lots of those are kind of dead ends, but sometimes it really is an exciting thing. So Brett's, I don't think walked into this Ice Age flood story completely cold. I think he did have some leads from some of the Spokane science teachers as well as other locals that he ran into along the way. And if I can find more of those connections, I'm going to try using uh, my means. But most of that has been uh, attempted to, to, to put together uh, independently. What I'm, that was awkward. Let me say that differently. Vic Baker, who uh, has been teaching for a long time at the University of Arizona, uh, and is also a, a historian, essentially, <coughs> has, has, has done what he can uh, to uh, unearth some of these connections between Brett's and others uh, to help him write these, these exciting papers of the 1920s. But regardless, uh, that's the, what got Brett's into the story. And uh, we might do another episode here because I, I think I want to stop with early Bretts, and we might go into more depth on what Bretts was able to find in the channeled scablands and take it from there. But the early Brett story, to me, is where the juice is and where we can paint a decent picture of the difficulty of traveling in eastern Washington. Uh, Bretts is walking around with those grad students. He's, he's, he's taking the train uh, and getting off at a certain stop and then walking for a few days and then making an arrangement with the train conductor to get picked up at uh, Warden the next time he comes through, that sort of thing. And it's not till 1925 that Brett owns a car for the first time and drives out with his family from Chicago and starts getting around on his own with his automobile. So that's a little window into the uh, early life of J. Harlan Brett, which I find interesting. Hopefully you found it interesting as well. Hey, listener, thanks for listening to this one. Who knows where we're going with the next episode, but just thought I'd lay this one down. Goodbye.